Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me as always is my co-host and professor coaching me as an apprentice witch, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm doing well, but you have not yet paid me for the poison dragon liver, and I, I do expect recompense. Well, I'll probably hear from a collector. <laughs> oh, for sure. Arriving hey, by bed. <laughs> hey, what what uh, movie are we tackling today? We are doing Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Ooh, from 1971. Wonderful. Yes. I have fond memories of this movie, Andy. And mm-hmm. yet, when I watched it again as an adult, I had a very different experience than I had as a child. And I'm hoping we can figure out what, what the difference is. Well, I have a whole lot of key facts today. So, I mean, like more than usual. So buckle up, listener and Larry. Um, There are a lot. And this may explain kind of what happened with this picture and how you saw it and how we just saw it on Disney+. Plus. Okay. So in August of 1945, while he was courting P.L. Travers for Mary Poppins, and everybody kind of knows that story if you've seen... um, Saving Mr. Banks. Saving Mr. Banks, right? Uh, Walt Disney knew that he needed another British story with a magical heroine as a strong backup in the event that Poppins failed. So he optioned the magic bed knob or how to become a witch in 10 easy lessons. And then a second book, Bonfires and Broomsticks by a woman named Mary Norton. Okay. Now in this book, the children and Miss Price... Uh, traveled to the 16th century to rescue a necromancer from being burned at the stake for sorcery. And of course, Miss mm-hmm. Price and the necromancer fall in love and she stays in the 16th century. Okay. Okay. So the same people who brought us Mary Poppins are back together for bed knobs and broomsticks with, of course, one notable exception. Uh, Walt Disney passed away in December of 1966 and Bed Knobs and Broomsticks was already in production at that time. Uh, Robert Stevenson was directing, Bill Walsh was screenwriting, the technical special effects and animation team was in place, and of course the Sherman Brothers were writing the music. Okay. Um, after the success of Mary Poppins and also The Sound of Music, every Hollywood studio started working on these large-scale musical films, and all of them seemed to hit the market in and around 1966 to about 1968. Couple afterwards, but not as quite as many. The the core of them happened during that time period. And the public, being the public, they kind of grew tired of the novelty. Uh, the Happiest Millionaire uh, was a Disney uh, movie, for example, it was a big musical, a huge scale musical. And it proved to be a bit of a flop, not because it's a bad movie necessarily, but because the large budget you know, just made it kind of a miss. And there was just, the, you know, the market was just too clogged. Um, the Happiest Millionaire had to be trimmed down for New York's Radio City Music Hall Christmas attraction in 1967. And I find that really interesting. So Walt Disney's passed away in December and they're already telling, people are already telling them <laughs> Disney what to do in 1967. So yeah. it's it's kind of a weird you know, it's it's kind of a, there's a definitely been a shift since since Walt's passing, right? So in nineteen fast forward four years in nineteen seventy one, Bedknobs and Broomsticks is competing with the likes of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Fiddler on the Roof. Um, but again, the surge of these big scale musicals post Poppins seems to has have cooled a little bit. And you know, part of this also just might be the thing that we said when we did the Peach Dragon episode, which is I think the public starts to figure out that, in fact, there's a difference between a theater musical and a film musical, and the movie industry hasn't figured out how to how to square that circle, you know? Right. Like, how right. do you make a musical for for a film? They don't know. They're just following the Broadway model, and the Broadway model doesn't work that way. Right. Correct. And, you know, if you have a choice to go see your friends in a 
uh, community theater production of The Sound of Music, or you go see another something that Hollywood's dreamed up that you don't know much about, eh, you might go see your friends, right? So there's competition in that market for sure. Sure. So I tell you, I tell you all of that <laughs> to tell you this, right? Uh, Richard Sherman was interviewed in 2007 about bed knobs and broomsticks. And he said that the goal of bed knobs and broomsticks was to promote the heroism of the British people at the lowest point in their history. Britain was the one country that held the Nazis off. Um, the old home guard was willing to fight on the beaches if necessary. They were never going to surrender. And thematically, that is the story that never give up, never surrender. That's the theme of Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So this is a movie to celebrate the greatest generation then. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. And really, even even before the greatest generation, it's almost like um, there's a generation before them even. But um, I'm going to I have to point out if that's the goal, though, Andy, saying uh-huh. that the old home guard would have failed if not for the intervention of a witch doesn't really celebrate them. They do not actually repel the invasion. It gets taken right. care of them by magic. Right. Well, okay. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm getting, I'm coming in hot. I apologize. <laughs> That's okay. So Walt Disney loved the songs. The Sherman brothers had brought these songs to him. They brought him the old home guard. They brought him Eglantine. They brought him a, a song called with a flare which was a song showcasing Emilius Brown and how he operated. Um, the which they made him write, you know, the children they find Emilius Brown and he sings with a flair. Um, the movie began with a song called Nobody's Problem, which the children sang in the beginning. Um, their mother and father had been killed in the Blitz. And okay. so Hey. Okay. <laughs> no, no, because all right, so so listener. Uh, this was an issue for me because I didn't know their parents were dead until 90 percent of the way in the movie when when Paul says we have a dad now. And I was like, what? What? You you, right. you thought she was your mother? She? I just thought they were kids who were sent away from London. I didn't know they were orphans had been orphaned right. because of the war. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm learning. I'm learning. This is okay. good. Keep going. So the age of not believing was written after Walt's death and the Sherman brothers had not been at the Walt Disney studios for two years. And they really didn't know how to jump back into the project without Walt's direction. So they sat down, they started talking and they realized they had to believe in themselves and that they could really do what was needed here to make this picture work. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, they write a ton of songs. They do this. They, you know, they work with um, Robert Stevenson. They work with Bill Walsh. And the team comes up with this movie that they really believe is a true winner. All right. However, for the premiere in 1971 at radio at New York's Radio City Music Hall Christmas attraction, uh, the hall requires the movie to be under two hours, just like with Happiest Millionaire. So the movie goes from 141 minutes to 117. And a lot got cut. A lot. And, and I'm going to I'm going to suggest having seen I think we saw the uncut version of this, correct? Or or partially well, restored? Well, okay. So in 1996, the film was reconstructed for DVD using what was left on the cutting room floor. And the Portobello Road version was extended. Okay. Even lo- it, it's even longer than at the 141 mark. Oh lord! So it's a, yeah, it's very long. Okay. However, there are scenes with Roddy McDowell courting Miss Price. Those no longer exist. He wow. wants to marry. Her. He wants to marry her for her property. Uh, those no longer exist. Okay. <laughs> the war orphan scene at the beginning. Um, it no longer exists. There's a song called A Step in the Right Direction. It could not be replaced because the film was so bad. And mm. the com- commitment of the town to fight the Nazis together as a group, um, that was still missing. 
And so there's a whole lot that there's so much that's missing from the story that it's almost what we're seeing is sort of a Swiss cheese version with lots and lots of holes. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, now that you now that you inform me of all, I mean that. So really, what we end up is a movie that that was no one's vision, right? No, it's not. Right. You know, like sometimes we look at a movie and we're like, oh, this person took over and they turned this thing into another thing. This was it. Just it just became what it became be, because of outside forces beyond anyone's control. Right, and I'm I'm watching this movie and I'm like, Roddy McDowell's a big star at this time. He's he he's got third billing in this movie and he is like I'm like not in it. Like he's not no in the songs, movie. He, no, no songs, no songs, nothing. Mm, right? Uh no no arc. No, he's not on anybody's arc. He just sort of shows up. Um and I was always very curious about that. I think that's explained here. And then Richard Sherman makes this really profound statement about this movie after saying that a lot of people, including him, I mean, he and his brother were really upset about these cuts. And he says, at this point, there was a board of directors. There wasn't a Walt Disney anymore. Well, and that's what it is. The ship needed a captain. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. and you know, it was it was done by committee. Uh, yeah. And not just committee, external forces dictating how the movie had to be. Well, yeah, it was business. These were business decisions and not artistic, uh, visionary decisions. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. All right. Sh shall we go into this then? Yeah. Uh, okay. I will say, I will say this after learning all this, there's a lot that I want to see. <laughs> well, I want to see all the stuff that got, I mean, it still isn't in this version. I want to see whatever condition it's in, right? Well, good news. I found the, the lyrics, the so the singing of step in the right direction. And I will oh, share it wonderful. on our, I'll share it on our Facebook fan page uh, at, oh, at some great. point. Uh, awesome. So, so I'm a little tentative about starting the Manish Tana here because now it's starting to sound like, so usually we begin, we say, why does the movie start where it starts? And in fact, I don't, from what you've just told me, I don't think anyone wanted the movie to start where it starts. No. Right? Um, so, so we begin... And we've we're we're you know seeing I, I believe the opening scene. I, for, forgive me if I'm not getting the exact right moment. The opening scene is we see all of these orphans getting adopted from what appears to be like a museum uh, of some sort, and like mm -hmm. you know people are coming. They're taking orphans, and I'm not necessarily orphans, but children from London. Uh, and you know we've got three who no one's picked up yet, and. That's where we begin. Um, and why begin here? Well, I mean, it's a way for us to know there's a war going on without seeing an actual battle, right? I um, mean, we see the after effects of this war. We see um, that there's a little bit of a, uh, a bit piece where the, there's a gentleman and he's up painting the signposts. And right. he's, uh, yes, and he's yes, painting yes. over Pepper and Jai. And, and the guy says, you there, you know, is this Pepper and Jai? And then he goes, well, I'm, I'm painting over these in case the Nazis come, right? He's like, well, I'm not a Nazi. I'm a British, you know, soldier. Yes, that's a what British. a Nazi would say. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Right. So, it, so it's a way, it's, it's whimsical, but at the same time, um, you know, it's, it, there's a war going on. This is, there's some hard things happening. So, but I guess the question becomes, what do we lose by not having, you know, that opening scene that you described of losing the, the children's parents in the Blitz? Um, and on the one hand, I, I think what we lose is the opportunity to really empathize with these kids. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, like, you know, th they've been through so much, like, we should want something for them. And instead, they're just the last kids on the list. There's nothing mm -hmm. there's nothing special that's marked them that we should be more concerned about these kids than any of the other kids who were who were sent away. So that's right. what we I mean, lose from that. 
We don't have a real special connection with them. I mean, I think I'm thinking about Jane and Michael Banks in Poppins, right? If, if we hadn't seen Katie Nana be kind of a grumpy old, you know, nasty woman who really didn't care about these kids and we didn't see Jane and Michael get lost in the park and we didn't see their letter where they tell their father, this is what they want for Poppins, right? Uh, yeah. that this, this is what they're looking for in a nanny. Like we, we have no way to really connect with the kids. And, and I also think like we really need to get a sense of, you know, all of the other kids know there's a normal to get back to. And these kids have no idea what they'll ever come back to. There is right. no going back to normal from them. The, there, there's no hope for that. And and I think a lot of that would do some empathy building with the three of them. On the right. other hand, this movie is not prepared to deal with the idea of trauma. These kids don't seem traumatized in the museum. They're picking up, they're picking up things and they're messing around with museum pieces. They're they're playing. Um at no point in the movie do I ever get a sense that they are recently orphaned. That they're right. dealing with something. At one point, at one point, Charlie's like, come on, we're going to like run away and go back to London, which to right. my mind, I thought, hey, they're going back there, want to get back to their parents. They miss their parents. They're homesick. Right. Which is how and, I read this movie, too, before I knew what I knew. Um, you know, I, I um, you know, I, I know of stories of people who were sent to the country when they were young to avoid the war. Right. And yeah. so this is this is that story. Um, but it's okay. not that story. It's not that story. And and I have. OK, let's let's go through the plot here such as it is. But it's go, this. I feel like I'm saying this every week, Andy. This plot is going to be hard to analyze. And it is because of the protagonist problems we'll be dealing with later on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yep. So. We get a lot of exposition. Uh, World War II, it's a thing. Um, it's happening right now. There is concern that uh, Lund- uh, England might soon be invaded by the Nazis. Uh, we see the old home guard, uh, these these formerly retired soldiers, going back into service to secure to secure the homeland. Uh, we we meet the children. We watch the children get uh, get give put into. Uh, various, I'm going to say, fosterage situations. Uh, I don't know that that's the right term for for the refugee situation that they're in, but but I'll use that term here. Uh, and there's a few things that we could throw out as the inciting incident of this movie. And I'm not quite, I don't think it's neat. And one thing I might say is the inciting incident of this movie is Mrs. Price, it, I'm sorry, Miss Price is forced to take in three children to her home, right? Right. That could be the inciting incident of this movie. These characters have never met. They've never fought. um, They've never formed a bond before. Uh, And that's that it's new circumstances for both of them. But I don't actually think that's the inciting incident of this movie because it doesn't really propel the action forward. Uh, Andy, what would you make a case for as the inciting incident? I think um, pretty much everything is exposition. I mean, the way this is cut, right? Everything is exposition up to uh, the kids going to bed and then Miss Price getting her broom and figuring out how to fly. Because if she doesn't fly and she doesn't uh, become, you know, more of a witch, then this... um, this movie doesn't really have much magic in it, right? And the magic's yeah. where the where the good stuff is, I guess. This this movie is a movie about witchcraft. And if we don't get to the witchcraft, there is no movie. So when the kids realize that the person they're staying with is a witch, that sets off a chain of events. In theory, it sets off a chain of events. Um But then we get to the rising action, and the rising action is a little bit, in the parlance of video games, 
it becomes a little bit fetch quest. Are you familiar with the term fetch quest, Andy? I am, but why don't you unpack it for our listeners? So, so in a video game, uh, very often you will have a goal. You want to find, for example, the magic sword of um, Eglantine, let's, let's say. And so the person says to you, well, in order to, to, to find the sword, you need to get this map. And you're like, great, can I buy the map? And they say, no, but I'll trade you the map for the rock of Professor Brown. So you go to find the rock of Professor Brown. But in fact, you in order to get the rock of Professor Brown, you need the bed knob from Charlie. To, and so, so it becomes like this, I, I have to get this 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 to get to the sword. Right. And this movie is very much that. So, uh, Miss Price... Okay, so so still, I think, before we even start the movie, we, we you know, so... Uh, Charlie extorts Miss Price, threatening to reveal her to be a witch. Uh, she turns him into a rabbit. They come to an accord, and the agreement is... Uh, they The kids get this magic spell in the form of a bed knob that will take them anywhere. That's the price for their silence. Immediately, she finds out that her correspondence witch course has terminated uh, unexpectedly, and the one spell she wanted is the one spell she hasn't gotten yet. So she says to them, I need this spell to stop the Nazis. Let me go talk to Professor Brown to get to get the spell. So they get in the they get in the bed, they go to Professor Brown. Professor Brown doesn't have the spell, but he knows where he got the book. He got the book from Portobello Road. So then they got on the bed to go to Portobello Road. When they get to Portobello Road, there is someone who has the you know first of all, they sing and dance for 45 minutes. But then they get back on task. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. They get back on don't, task. Don't hold back. <laughs> uh, okay. And this guy, Bookman, has the other half of the book. They put the book back together, and it still doesn't have the spell in it. So then uh, Paul says, wait a second. Uh, they're talking about the, the the island of Nambubu or whatever it is. Um, and I have a children's book. And that's where the Star of Astaroth is that you need because the Star of Astaroth is the words on the on the amulet that that can cast the spell that you want. So they get on the bed and then they go to the island of Nambubu um, and they meet the king who has the Star of Astaroth. But they can't get it from him. So in order to get it from him, they have to make friends with him. To make friends with him, Professor Brown agrees to referee a soccer game. There is a soccer game. He gets near the king. He does the old switcheroo. And he gets the star. He brings it back. But the star is gone. And, oh, and, it, just, and, and it just keeps going like that. But eventually she has the spell because it turns out that 98% of their journey was unnecessary. The spell was in Paul uh, was in Paul's children's book the whole time. Right. They did not need to go to Portobello Road. They did not need Professor Brown. They did not need the island of Nabubu. They needed none of it because they had it the whole time. She cast the spell and it doesn't quite work. Andy, where is the climax of this movie? So I think the climax of this movie is, I think there are two. I think the first is sort of the battle between the substitutionary locomotion characters, knights, and the Nazis, right? Yes. Um, and then I also think it's when Miss Price and Amelia Brown finally decide that they are a couple. 
Cool. So so you're you're pointing to that there's an action sequence, and that's the war. You know, we say climaxes are between good and evil. I'm going right. to posit out there our official podcast stance is that Nazis are evil, and therefore this is a war between good and evil. That is canon. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think so, too. Uh, and... But you're also saying that there's an emotional climax that has to do with uh, Emilius and Eglantine, where they realize that they do have feelings for each other and that that maybe they found each other in a certain way. Right, right. I would actually point uh, to the emotional climax being a little sooner than that. And Andy, it hurts me to say this, but this movie is not really about Eglantine. It's really more about (laughs) Professor Brown. Mm -hmm. And there is a moment where he's left them. He has a conversation with himself and realizes, you know, he actually cares about this woman and these children and he needs to go back to save her. That is his dark midnight of the soul. Um, I I could point to that as an emotional climax. It's the same thread, though. It's the same. we're, We're both like an. I would take your answer, and I'm sure you would take mine. Uh, but that's that's the emotional beat there. And then we get some falling action, which made me yell at the screen, because something happens in the falling action that drives me crazy. What, what, Can you what guess you? what it is, Andy? <laughs> I can't. Okay. I'm over you here laughing. Know. I'm over here laughing because I, okay. get to see, I get to see you, like, in front of the oh, TV Oh, I got so mad, going. listener. <laughs> So, so Professor right. Brown has enlisted. Uh, even though they've just formed this sort of found family, he's enlisted. But we get the sense the reason he's enlisted is he finally has something worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're celebrating we're celebrating his heroic sacrifice. He's made a full turn from being like this sort of con man to someone who will fight and die for his country. And that part of it, I'm fine with. The part that made me mad was was mm-hmm. Eglantine says, I'm going to put all my witchcraft away. I was never really meant to be a witch. And who Terrible. in the audience wants that? None of us. None of us want that. I mean, she's worked so hard to get to where she is that she just puts it all away to become, ostensibly, to become a wife and mother, Right. Because everyone knows that you can't be a witch and a wife and mother. You have to, you know, oh, there but, but things you have to do. But here's the thing. Our journey was we were watching her get spells to become a witch. Mm-hmm. Hearing at the end of this that, you know, I never really wanted that. Well, then what did you just put me through <laughs> for two hours? <laughs> Why did I watch this? <laughs> this is this is like I, I I'm. I'm really struggling here. This this is like if you watch the cutting edge and at the end they say, you know what? I don't want to figure skate anymore. It's just, right. it's just, <laughs> why? No, no. Like yeah. It's, you know, you could see something in the beginning where maybe she's a lonely, uh, a lonely person and she's doing this witchcraft thing because it gives her purpose in life. But maybe she's afraid to commit to somebody or maybe she's afraid to, um, you know, she she's never going to get what she really wants, but she has to say that there has to be something about that. And then she can if then if she puts the witchcraft away, then it sort of makes sense. But the war I, I, isn't you. over. Yeah, the war's needs- not over. Your right. man is going overseas and now you're going to give up. I, I got to tell you somewhere, somewhere down the line. When Hitler is destroyed and the Axis powers have been broken, if if you want to have a conversation with me about putting aside magic because it, it was something you did for the war, right. I am willing to be your guidance counselor and we can transition here. But <laughs> but you uh, have an uh, you're you really just wanted it for this one battle. This one minor battle, that was what we went through it for? Right. Go kill Hitler. (laughs) Go do it, Eglantine. You have the power. Use the bed, get to his bunker, turn him into a bunny, and then, I don't know. 
I don't make know. Make fricassee or whatever, right? Rabbit stew. <laughs> there you go. That's what I Yeah, I mean, it just it just feels and again, she just doesn't have a story purpose. No. I mean, I'm gonna I'll just say that. Like if the purpose is to find these it's like, what's the underlying purpose? It's like, yes, she's going to find these things, but what's her real want? And we never see that. And the beginning, you know, she seems she seems so excited about this witchcraft and that she can fly and there are all these things. And then she starts talking to the kids and the kids are going to blackmail her. She, does, she clearly doesn't want people to know that she's a witch, right? And so she wants to keep it secretive. But every, but again... The as you're watching this, it feels like we're getting a series of payoffs without any setups. No, like like we like why is Charlie blackmailing somebody, and why why are all these things? Why is all that happening? It doesn't make any sense. Why does Charlie and Carrie and Paul need money when their needs are met right there? Why do they feel like they need? Why do they feel like they need to go back to London? Is why anything? Be, yeah, why? There's never a why. The why just isn't answered here. The other thing that happens in the falling action is the kids go, well, I guess our adventures are over. And Paul says, not really. I still have the bed knob. We'll still go on adventures. But I right. guess those adventures will be even less safe than the previous adventures because there's no witch coming with them anymore. So uh, <laughs> best of luck. You know, the no. other thing that this movie doesn't do, Andy, uh, it, it uh, ostensibly the myth that they're giving us, the wish fulfillment is if you were a kid with the magic power to go anywhere, where would you go? Mm-hmm. The kids don't make the decisions as to where they would go. Well, the, I mean, they're Paul, immediately Paul co-opted. Say, well, Paul does say he wants to go to the jungle, right? I mean, he does say that. And, and they don't go they to don't, the jungle. No. I mean, they sort of, they go to an island-ish jungle, maybe. It's a forest there. It's it's not not a jungle. I mean, I guess the ki- lion is the king of the jungle, but they don't go there to have fun. They go no. there because that's where the mission takes them. Right. Um, I, I kind of, like, it's a little more fun if the kids are calling the shots as to where they're going. That makes that makes total sense to me. I would, yeah, mm. that's definitely a miss, a miss. Okay. I, well, I gotta calm about- down because I don't I don't hate this movie, but it is problematic. I, I feel it like is- I'm I'm very angry at the end of the movie, but maybe not all of the movie. It is, but don't, don't, can't you see? It really is kind of a Swiss cheese film in that I feel yeah. like we're missing key parts, and I can see why. I felt that when I watched it the first time, and I thought, all right, I want to watch more carefully this time and see, you know, are the kids set up? What is what is really getting set up here? There's not a lot of exposition in this movie. No. Uh, which might be good, but you know, there are things I feel like we need that we just don't we just don't have. Um, let's talk about characters a little bit. Let's talk about Miss Price and Angela Lansbury. I'm gonna say something straight up. Like, I feel like if you're gonna have a protagonist, and I think the movie wants her to be the protagonist of this movie, um, if if you're going to have a protagonist in Angela Lansbury, she needs a song that's just her, hers that isn't, oh, my father always said that this song was the age of not believing, right? Um, right. She needs a song that's just hers. And when I know, when I read all of the things from Richard Sherman, I'm like, she did have a song. She had two songs, and those songs are gone. So, right. Yeah. Anyway, it's the thing that a song needs to do is they need to reveal something about the character, their secrets, their like wants, the, the, their wants, yep. their needs, the things they would never say. And mm-hmm. instead, she's giving like adages and advice, but but it's not really it's not providing a window into her. No, and I and think her soul or how she felt about her father or how she misses her father and tries to keep things alive for him or why she's so married to that property, or what, whatever it is, right? Uh, I mean, so so we could strengthen up her arc a little bit, I think, because mm-hmm. I, there's stuff there. There's ingredients here. We have mm-hmm. a woman who chooses to live alone, and part of living alone has led her to decide that the way to care for people is to become a witch to protect the people of her countryside. 
but she hasn't actually formed relationships with the people in her countryside. Right. And so so we if we were to somehow tie the idea that as she becomes a she can only be a witch if she's disconnected from other people. And suddenly she's tempted by the fact, like, I have to choose between my witchcraft and and my love of witchcraft and my love of these children, my love of this man. Then at the end of this movie, like like if she says, I can't do witchcraft anymore, I love too much, uh, then it's it's a little bit better. But I would actually say, like, maybe that's her misconception. And that actually what she finds out is the thing that she's been missing to keep her from being a witch is her spells were never motivated by love. Mm -hmm. And what she actually learns is she doesn't have to choose between those things. The more she loves the kids, the more her power grows. Mm -hmm. I feel like I feel like her spells, her spells could be in the service of something greater. Right. Right. Maybe to her community or maybe. Yeah. Agree. That motivation counts for magic. And maybe mm-hmm. her motivations were corrupt or they just weren't strong enough before. But when she's casting magic in the service of protecting her children, she becomes powerful. That that is the arc she should have here. Mm-hmm. And it isn't and it, sh- and it should just be like and maybe at one point, like the kids are like, you just want us nearby because because your magic is stronger when we're nearby. And then right. later, on, and maybe they all believe that. But then later on, she realizes it has nothing to do with the children being present physically. It, right, right. They're right, present yes. in my heart, and now I can. Oh, that's such a better movie. Yeah, yeah. And again, these are just these are just little tweaks because what's I think missing it's in there. this movie. I think what's missing is a heartbeat. I think they want Paul to be a heartbeat of this movie. I think mm-hmm. they want, but I think, but I think Miss Price is really the person that um, we're. She's growing into a Poppins, right? She's not Mary Poppins, but not she's yet. growing. She's growing into Mary Poppins, and she, you know, is learning to assert herself and maybe live outside of her father's shadow. I mean, there's so yeah. there's so much opportunity here, and I just th- I just think it gets missed. Uh, let's Agreed. talk about. Let's talk about Dr. Emilius Brown and David Tomlinson, who is so wonderful. Um, he is. He's very talented. I, I think it's so fun watching the two of them together. I think they have a fun chemistry. Um, I also think that Dr. Brown, uh, his character is, he's sort of a con man. He's a hack. Yeah, um, for sure. He's hes doing whatever he can to survive by his wits um, in, in London. And... Um, you know, he has the he's this correspondence school and he doesn't even he doesn't even think it works. It's surprising to him that the spells actually work. I think that's a, that's a fun little twist. Um, he also reminds me of Dr. Terminus, who comes later. Very much. Uh, and I, I, I said this in Pete's Dragon. Dr. Terminus is absolutely a member of the correspondence school. There's yes. there's no <laughs> doubt in my mind. He's he's a, he's another one of. Uh, Prof- Professor Brown, Dr. Brown's clients. There's just no yes. question for me. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. Uh, yeah. And again, I like, I think he has the biggest arc in this movie. He I definitely think he has go- the biggest He goes arc. from being kind of a hack showman to, um, and kind of a sleazeball, really, who's willing to run out in the middle of the night to somebody who is loved and has found family and cares about, um, People other than himself. You know, this this all goes to theme a little mm-hmm. bit for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like the theme of this should be about belief and believing in other people and believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that his arc is, for the first time in his life, he has people who believe in him. Yes. Not who he's tricked into believing into him. Uh-huh. Who believe in the real him. And that's a hard, like, like he's always been trying to get people to believe in him, but he was trying to trick them. He right. was selling himself as someone he wasn't. Here he is who he really is, and they believe in him, and that's transformative. And you can mirror that arc with with Eglantine and believing in herself, right? Right, like These are right. two people who, when they believe in each other, learn to believe in themselves. Give me, Give me some of that. 
Yeah, I mean, we have a song, The Age of Not Believing, right? Um, yeah. Most of all, you doubt yourself. Um, yeah. And then you have to go from doubting yourself to realizing that that there's something wonderful in you, right? And I think that's what happens to Amelius Brown there at the train station on that bench. He's lying there realizing, I could be in a nice, soft space and with people who really care about me. Why did I leave? Right. And really wrestling with that. Right. I think the, what he comes to is the reason he be, he left was like he knew he would disappoint them. Mm-hmm. Right. When, you know, like like he couldn't like he wouldn't be able to maintain it, but it wasn't an illusion. He really does love them. Mm-hmm. I Okay. I have to talk about the kids and it feels like the script because they're young and they're young performers can't really trust them to do any of the emotional work for this movie. Mm-hmm. And so everything gets shifted to the adults rather than the kids. It's a movie selling a kid's fantasy of being able to go wherever you want, traveling by bed. And yet, and yet so, so much of the emotional life of the characters is being invested into the adults and not the children. We spend way more time with Jane and Michael and Mary Poppins yeah. than we spend with these three kids. Uh, my youngest had an insight. He says, why are there even three children anyway? They don't mm-hmm. they don't have enough for one kid to do. And I was like, oh, oh, he's right. Yeah. I mean, Harry has not- nothing to do. She does almost nothing. I mean, it's almost like you kids take the bed and uh, you you're on the sofa, um, and and that, that's her that's her role. She does have a scene where she cries when Amelius Brown leaves. I mean, you would like to see more. Um, you'd like to see more loss from the from the kids. And again, I think we're missing it in the beginning. I think if we had something from the children where they were just really broken, and then their hope as you know of being connected to someone uh is you know miss price and it's like oh we here's somebody who's going to care for us and miss price is kind of like i don't really know if i want to do that then then you've got tension and conflict but they're not giving the kids really much conflict at all charlie is the only charlie's the only one of the children that really has some conflict because he's like, okay, I see how the world works and I'm going to get as much out of this as I can. And in that way, he's kind of going down the path of becoming another Emilius Brown, right? That's exactly what I was about to say. The arc for Charlie should be, he's a young Dr. Brown and they should have scenes just the two. That's really the thing. They're always together like Huey, Dewey and Louie and DuckTales, right? But they need time apart from each other to differentiate themselves a little bit. There should be a scene where it's just Dr. Brown and Charlie, where Dr. Brown should see a lot of himself in Charlie, the deal it making, the, mm-hmm. the looking at all the angles, the conning, and but also like intervene a little bit and like be like, hey, Charlie, I had a younger brother and sister. I never talked to them anymore. It's one of the biggest regrets of my life. It like like you 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 can't be pursuing this. You'll end up alone like me. Similarly, Carrie and Eglantine should have some girl bonding time, right? Like they should do some older woman, younger woman, like like becoming a woman. What does it What does it mean? Conversation. Yeah, even if Carrie said something to Miss Price, like. I'm all alone now. I don't know how to be alone or I don't know what it's like to be alone, but you're alone, Miss Price, and you do just great and wants to emulate her or whatever. But we realize that Miss Price isn't doing a good job of being alone either. I mean, that she wants it, to be a can, witch. Carrie yeah, wants yeah. to be a witch, too. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but like making a movie about a young girl named Carrie who discovers she has powers <laughs> feels like a hit to me. <laughs> Yeah, especially in 1971, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of years later, we'll get to we'll get a movie like that. But yeah, um, yeah. There's there's the um, and Paul, of course, is the one who is the believer that he's the true believer in the bed knob. He carries the stuff with him, you know, the the glass and the rope, and he carries little things with him. I, I want him to really miss his parents. 
And they and 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 then if if he really misses his parents, then he says, "You're our." When he says, "You're our father now," right, Doctor Brandt? Like you're going to be our father. Like then there's an emotional gut punch, and I think Tomlinson tries to deliver that gut punch in his performance, but it's not. And it's a great payoff. It's just not set up. It's not set up, and and there's so. I, here's the thing. I don't feel like the script trusts its actors. And no. that's that really, you know, they're, they're kids. And I understand you get kid performances from kids sometimes. But with a good director, you can get the take that you need. And they've got that. It's, but, but there's no point in going for it. The script doesn't require it of them. And, and it just more to do with the kids. We need more yeah. to do with the kids. That's, yeah. that's what I come away with here. Yeah. And of course, there's there's actually um, uh, Rodney McDowell is this clergyman and we see him saying that he needs to stop by Miss Price's to help the kids with spiritual edification or whatever. And she says, no, that won't be necessary. <laughs> and then we don't see him again. ever. <laughs> I mean, we see him one more time, I think, if there's there's some little bit piece. But but foiling just- him against Dr. Brown makes yes. a lot of sense and that clearly was what they had in the original yes right? and maybe maybe dr I, here's the line i want dr brown to have about uh rowan i want him to say like it takes a con man to sniff out another con man his yes. con mine right right and the fact that he's trying to you know he's kind of a false False prophet, right? Trying pretending, to pretending to like to love her, her so they, because she want he wants the property. Right, he's Mister uh, like, Mr. Collins and from Pride and Prejudice, right? He's the same. He's totally Mr. Character. Collins. <laughs> yeah, but but we don't see that because again, we're watching a movie that just got hacked to death. Yeah, um, and it's gosh, it's so disappointing. Um, any other notables? That you can I have think of and characters? two that I want to talk about. Sure. And the first one I want to talk about is Bookman. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. Who are, also wants to complete the book in order to learn this, the same spell that Miss Price wants to, lo- to learn. Uh, he, he's as close as this movie comes to an antagonist, uh, but he's willing to be civil with her. Um like the the negotiations end up going sour, but I do think he enters into those conversations with good good faith. Um, I think there's more to do with him. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, what if he followed them to the island of of Naboo and was trying to get to the Star of Astaroth before, before she did? They yes. Do? Then we el- then we have conflict, right? We have more. Make have it more a chase. Stakes. Give it. Yes. Give those scenes urgency. They don't have all the time in the world to dance around with the fish underwater because Bookman's on land. By the time they get on land, he's already best buddies with the king. Right? right. That would be uh, amazing. It would be amazing. Uh, yeah. The other character I want to talk about is the king, King Leonidas. Um, so I feel like Disney wants us to dislike this character. The you know, he looks similar to um, Prince John from Robin Hood a little bit. Right. He's not a and we, he's not a not regal met, looking lion. And we've not met Prince John yet. Um, that's that's coming Disney. later. Yeah, that's coming later. So again, at night, I think seventy four is Robin Hood, right? So, but he's got that same sort of there's there's no no nobility in the bearing of his physicality, right? Uh, and he does come off as a bit of a bully and as a bit of a brute. Right. I wanna. I I want to point out that our characters, our heroes, are completely in the wrong in their act- interactions with King Leonidas. <laughs> they are. They they're come, thieving. They're they're thieves, right? They come to the. At no point do they ever say to him, "Can we borrow the Star of Astaroth? Can we read the words and write them down?" They don't ask for any of that. In no. fact, in fact, King Leonidas, what we know about him is two things. He hates people because of his, his issues with the previous wizard, and he loves soccer. And when Emilius says, hey, I'll referee for you, mm-hmm. um, 
Leonidas decides maybe he doesn't hate people after all. At mm-hmm. the end of the sequence, he's like, you guys should come back. And and we could make an argument here that Leonidas has made serious strides in overcoming his prejudice against people. He thought all people were terrible. And, and maybe through the kindness of his interactions with Brown and the children and Eglantine, he's really turned a corner and then they rob him. Right. That's what our heroes do. And, he, and what he learns is humans are not to be trusted. I was right the first time. Kill him on sight. Well done. The next visitors to the island of Nabubu will really owe you, you guys. Uh, oh, it makes me mad. It makes me well, mad because I, he's not villainous enough. No, I mean, I think there's a missed opportunity here because we were doing a movie about fighting Nazis, right? And yes. eventually, eventually we get to some Nazis, but it would be really good to have some like Nazi-esque king. Maybe he's really awful. Maybe I, Make I him know a in fascist. The, I mean, I know. Yeah, I know. In the soccer match, they have like all the good, you know, all the good people against all the maybe not so great players, and so the it, there's kind of a fix there. Uh, but that doesn't feel I don't think like so. Any- they're evenly matched. They're uh-huh. evenly matched. They. It would, the score is zero zero for most of the game. Well, when that you is, see the when you see the one team, they're like all rough and brawn, and then the other team's like you know shaking or whatever and quaking because the they really plays don't. well. They they match right, them. right. So that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Like again, it's just a missed opportunity to make that. There's a little bit of ambiguity, I think, and I think if it were just clearer that he's really really a bad guy, I think we'd be in better shape. They they hint at this in the ocean. They're like, things are bad up on the island. Well, right. show me that they're bad. The only they thing that seems yeah. that seems bad is that the king is in a bad mood because he wants to play soccer and no one will referee for him. And that's not bad. What it should I mean, this, be is the messenger bird. He's locking bird people up or, yeah, he's doing awful things. To, yeah, exactly. We need to see, like, the fisherman bear brought people on board. He goes to jail. The messenger bird needs to be trembling every time the king says something. Right. He needs to be an oppressive tyrant to these people. And right. then we can get behind the idea. And the second the soccer game is over, he should be like, thank you so much for refereeing. Now send them to jail. And we're going to kill Exactly. Them. Exactly. They're never in danger, right? And this, this guy can't be learning much. Yeah. Yeah. For a movie that's ultimately going to have Nazis in it, why don't I feel like there's a strong antagonist anywhere? Yeah, I Nazis, mean, this should, this should be Nazis an allegory. Nazis are your golden ticket. <laughs> that's They're right. your golden ticket when you're writing an antagonist. It's not hard to make a Nazi villain. Right? Right. right. And so, you know, this is a perfect opportunity, I think, for an allegory where you see we see what's going to happen in this sort of cartoony way. And then, but then it's really happening, and the children have learned something from that cartoon experience uh, in Cartoon Land that they can then apply uh, when the Nazis really come knocking, right? Yes, I mean that's. Agreed. I feel. I feel like there's just it just it feels out of place, and it's it is the point in the movie where I'm done, you know, like, I, and I don't know if it's because of the length of Portobello Road. I don't know. Oh my it just, god, Portobello Road just goes on. It just seems it's a long dis- road. <laughs> it just seems sort of disjointed. Let's talk a little bit about music. We've talked about um, music in other films before, and you know, of course, we've got some deleted. We've got some deleted songs with a flare, uh, "Don't Let Me Down," "A Step in the Right Direction." All are all of those are plot driven songs, and they're gone. So yeah. that's that's unfortunate. Um, we have the beautiful Briny, which was supposed to be in Mary Poppins and got repurposed for this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see the beautiful Briny being something that instead of maybe I love to laugh and that with Uncle Albert, they were going to do a do that. Bit. Sure. I could see that. Um, but the first song is the old home guard. Um, and we kind of meet the the soldiers who are, you know, and honor them. And then we meet, uh, and then we hear the age of not believing, um, which I think, I think, okay, so 
again. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm building up here. Let me let me let you go first. I will say, I will say this: like the age of not believing is a. I love like that song. Like when I hear "There's Something Wonderful in You," like I cry every time. No lie. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, um, in this movie, I would love to see her perform this song where she is starting out by lecturing Charlie. And then realizing she's singing to herself. Right. I think that's a miss. I think, so, so here's where I'm going to say something and I'm worried I'm going to upset you, Andy. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. This is not about the quality of the music, which I will concede. A lot of these songs are excellent and sticky. Portobello Road, I've been singing all week long, (laughs) right? Beautiful Briny Sea, sticky. I'm mad at how you had used the idea that there were plot-driven songs. Mm-hmm. And my issue with this movie is these are song this is a song-driven plot. They wrote the songs, and then the plot will swerve out of its lane to try to get to a place where they can negotiate the song. Yeah. And the the age of not believing is a great example of this. She's singing so Paul. Now, Paul, Charlie has decided he doesn't believe that the bed is going to actually transport himself. So she sings this song about how when you're a teenager, you don't actually believe yourself. You don't believe in magic anymore. Except previously, in the last 20 minutes, Charlie watched Eglantine fly and then was transformed into a rabbit. The idea that suddenly he doesn't believe in magic two minutes later makes no sense. But they have this song, and by God, they're going to sing it. They're going, and this happens throughout the movie. They don't actually need to go to Portobello Road because Portobello Road isn't where the story happens. The story Mm -hmm. happens in a bookshop. But they go to Portobello Road because they have a song about Portobello Road, and it's a great song. They don't need to be under the sea in the beautiful briny, uh, in the beautiful briny, except they got a song about the beautiful briny. So that's where they're going to go. For some reason, the bed missed the island. The, the, the plot is constantly like taking left turn detours in order to hit the songs when, in fact, you it's backwards. You write your story and then get your songs where you need them. You figure yeah. out what, where should this, where, what moments in this story require a song and you create songs that the plot leads to organically. I can, see where, of, I can see where you see that. I mean, I see this as more like a, an answer to Poppins. So I see like Old Home Guard is almost like Sister Suffragette, right? Um, sure. It's a, it's a similar kind of song. And the age of not believing is sort of a um, the children singing about um, again. It would be helpful if the children were actually singing a song, right? Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> like the nobody's problem song, uh, which needs to go uh, in there, which would be again Jane and Michael singing. Then the age of not believing is almost like spoonful of sugar. Um, it's this morality kind of piece, and again. I think it was there, but I think without nobody's problems, like the age of not believing doesn't help. Nope. Like it doesn't have the heart tug that it could. Um, and and again, like when you're when you balance this against Poppins, like and you hear the songs that are going throughout, it makes sense. So the beautiful Briny almost comes off as a uh, parallel with. Um, the Mary. Every song. day is a lovely day with Mary. Mary, right? right. Yeah. It's this, I mean, it even sounds similar. Like the songs even sound a little similar. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there. this is about falling in love. Um, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. It's just, where do we put it? Why do we put it here? Right. I, I don't, right. it's, and I love the animation. I love how they're doing the hybrid animation. I, I enjoy yeah. that as a kid. As a kid, being at the island of Naboo and in the ocean is my favorite part of the movie. So I will say that when I was a kid, I was always upset that their hair never got wet in the beautiful briny. Like, I was like, why Why are they not closing wet? Why are they not getting wet? And why yeah, can they my just sing and saying, there's no bubbles, How are they right? breathing? There was, he's like, there's nothing in the spell that allows them to breathe underwater. 
yeah, this this is clearly not for. Um, he was also like buoyancy doesn't work this way. <laughs> right, right. So, but I hear you, Larry. I hear that like the songs need to be need to complement the pop plot. Yes, um, and maybe even be a part of the plot, but not just the plot go to there because we have this great song. Exactly. I hear that. Right. I hear that. Exactly All right. right. Let's talk a little bit about protagonist problems because I oh have boy. a the the thing that I want to the nit that I want to pick with this movie is that um Miss Price again you, we cannot have a protagonist we lose her main numbers we give her scenes in the in the uh soccer match where she has absolutely nothing to do and to go from I mean I I want her arc to be this lonely woman who's a little eccentric, who's, you know, kind of closed off from the rest of the world, who's opening herself up to found family and love, right? One of my that's favorite things, found family. That's what I want for her, right? But that's, and that is Disney movie magic. When they get that right, it's, I mean, it's there. But this is not that. No, it's not. Uh, she's not the protagonist of this story, really. Right. And the kids aren't the protagonist of this story, really. The person who changes and grows is Dr. Brown. Yep. He's, he's the one who has, once he comes into the movie, it is his story and not their story anymore. They're mm-hmm. there. They're still main characters. But he's the one that we're connected to from the audience perspective. I think one of the cardinal sins of this movie is there's an extended sequence where... We're watching the soccer game, and I like the soccer game, Andy. It's a fun yeah. cartoon. I would love it as a five-minute Mickey, Donald, and Goofy cartoon. Of course. It's wonderful. Would love it for that. We are watching a game between two teams, and none of our characters is on a team. It no. shouldn't be that Professor Brown, the, the reason the king is upset is he can't find a referee. He should be upset because no one's willing to captain the other team because the captain, no one's willing to play against him anymore because he's right. really rough on, on the field. And then you say to yourself, well, but the whole family should be the other team. Get them all out there, uh, you know, playing soccer against these cartoons. And I realize we're at the limits of technology. We would do that now. Maybe right. that was an impossible ask back then. But it is a long sequence for us to be engaged in a game in which the outcome of that game is actually not plot relevant. No. It doesn't matter if the king wins or if the king loses. Right. There are no stakes for our characters. No. It's just, it's fun, but it's not the right kind of fun. Right. And I I will say that when I watched this as a kid, I don't remember the soccer scene. I don't remember... I, I don't remember it being that long. And I definitely was, don't remember Portobello Road being that long. But I I don't remember well, it Portobello being Portobello Road like, wasn't that long when we were a kid. That mo- that song goes on and on. Like, no. it, <laughs> at one point, at one point, like, again, I'm watching this with my youngest, and he's like, the song's still going? And, like, it looked like it was about to stop for a little bit, and then it starts up again. And he's like, what yeah. is happening? I really want to see the original cut, because I want to see, like, how did this work in the original cut? Um, yeah, that, that song just, is yeah, I'm just way curious. too long. I do yeah. not wish I had the full one hour, 41 minute uh, version of this. Yeah. Uh, I, I could take a shorter version of this, to be sure. This yeah. also is another one of those movies that you could break down into half hours and you can just watch it in chapters. There's mm-hmm. no there's no impetus. To, there's no need to watch it all in one setting. Yeah, it's definitely you know? episodic for sure. Yeah. All right. Pitch pitch time. So we're going to re- uh, what are we going to do with this movie? I don't think this. Oh. I By the way, I don't think this exists in any other form. Maybe I'm wrong uh, in the Disney canon. No, they have not re- they have not redone it. They've not touched this property since. Okay. Um, so I'm gonna steal a page from your book, Andy, and I'm gonna talk about oh. Imagineering a little bit. Because <laughs> you know what do you know what Disney World and Disneyland really needs? They, they need really a need? ride where parents can lie <gasps> down on a bed. A comfy, cushy bed, put their feet up. 
hope Dealey or Serta or something is listening. And to and the bed should move slowly. Mm. It should be a mostly dark ride as we tour mm. through the world of bed knobs and broomsticks and maybe maybe close our eyes for a little bit. <laughs> let the kids let the kids watch from the sides of the bed as we drift to sleep and get revitalized and go back. Uh absolutely needed for that so uh, universe of my... energy universe of energy except we're all on uh, from epcot except we're all on a bed <laughs> we're all lying down it is a ride meant to be experienced lying down that's I love that's what it. i want yeah <laughs> uh, if you've been to disney you know this is needed <laughs> you're not wrong you're not wrong. no i'm not all right so my pitch is that we just remake this movie that we include all the original Sherman Brothers songs, that we tell the story of modern-day war orphans that are being sent to an aspiring witch who needs the money for their care, but not she's not caring for them out of some sort of kind heart. Um, and so she's caring for them for all... She's fostering for all the wrong reasons, right? And then she gets hers when she realizes she's been learning witchcraft from a con man. And so she, and of course, drags the kids in tow because she has to to go confront him. And the con man, of course, is surprised that the witchcraft works and he's excited to have it. So he uses it to run away from the witch and her kids. Only they're always one step behind him. Right. And they end up capturing the con con man. And he explains that he was orphaned in a war and that he's had no one to really love him. And so they all get have they all get real with each other and then they combine efforts to stop the war that killed the parents of the children and they're all lauded by the world in the end as peacekeepers. Uh, they but again that seeking to restore the sides of that conflict and telling the truth and healing pain instead of really facilitating more violence. That's my pitch. I think that's a great pitch. I think uh, it's it, got again the, the everything's sticky here. There's stuff that's worthwhile here. There's stuff that there's we can a lot do. of great ingredients in this movie. Yes. and I but but what it's what it's lacking is the spine that you've given it in your pitch. I I think that's a solid spine. It's got an antagonist function which this movie really needs. It's got it's got like urgency. No, I like that a lot. Yeah. Thanks. Well, yeah. What movie? What movie are we tackling next week? Next movie, little known movie known as Toy Story 2. Toy Story uh, 2. <laughs> I'm super excited to talk about this one. The Buzz Lightyear problem is I let I I want to talk about the Buzz Lightyear problem. It's such a great example of dealing with writing obstacles and 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 surpassing them. So, uh, that should be a really good episode. Oh, that sounds awesome. Well, if you like what you're hearing, friends, will you do us a favor? Will you share this podcast with another Disney or a classic movie fan? And hey, if you write us a review, we would be so pleased. And you can check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page. You can tweet us at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner 6. Or you can drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. Traguna McCoydes Tricorum Say to Stay.